This episode of Lights Up contains mature language. Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a deck. Lights up. 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 A podcast by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. Lights up. My parents were on vacation in Bulgaria, and my grandfather and I were having a grand time. We paid no attention to schedules and ate whenever we wanted. I didn't have a girlfriend. I wasn't working. I wasn't going to school. And I ate a lot of butter because I saw no reason not to. I was reading The Basics of Archaeology by Professor Dusen and copying out clean versions of my poems from a handmade notebook. It was the best June of my life. Where's fate? Tanya? Where's fate? You're asking about Tanya. Tanya is on vacation. Your daughter is Tanya. Then where's fate? Grandma died a long time ago. Tanya then? Tanya's gone. Tanya's gone? Tanya's gone. That's the way our conversations went. Two years of standing guard over Grandpa had steeled my nerves. I noticed I was perfectly calm talking to him. Not like I used to be. I'm thick-headed and kind. Grandpa would come into my room every 20 minutes. When's fate coming back? Tanya will be here after the 24th. What about fate? Faith isn't coming. Give me my pills. No. Only one at bedtime. Taking care of an old drug addict wasn't all that difficult. The main thing was to set up psychological roadblocks. Plus, making sure the top wasn't snapped tight on the teapot. I'm going to the store. If you need hot water, get it from the thermos. Ask Faye to come see me, please. Don't mess with me, please. Tanya's on vacation. Tell Faith to buy some ice cream. All right. Only don't turn on the gas. As you understand it, my grandfather was senile. We were always afraid that someday he would gas us or start a fire. I'm back. Get up. We are having ice cream. Call Olga. Olga? I met Olga a year earlier during vacation. She didn't give me her number, but she took mine and promised to call after I got home. I had already given up on her honoring that promise. I don't have her number. She gave it to me, and I wrote it down. Gramps, I will give you two pills for that right now. What? I will give you Two pills. <laughs> Bring a man. <laughs> he never did get that extra dose of Nambutol, though. He lost the scrap of paper with the phone number. 
I scoured the whole room. Behind Grandpa's bed, I found my elementary school diploma, my mother's necklace, and a butcher knife. But there weren't any telephone numbers. You promised me pills. And you promised me a phone number. I wrote it down. Where is it then? I don't know. And now, all I could think of was Olga. Now, I was thinking about her even more than all the other girls I knew put together. That last conversation we had a year ago seemed to grow more incredible all the time. A half hour hadn't passed and I was hopelessly in love forever. <laughs> Olga is the only person who ever understood me. Plus, she was gorgeous. I really had to find that number. Gramps, how could you have lost that phone number? Man, I was pissed. This old fart drove my grandmother to her grave. He didn't fight in the war, and he was unapologetically selfish his whole life long. Thought about nothing but himself and his unending circle of friends. Spent more than he made. Turned down a free dacha when they offered him one. And refused to buy out his old work car when everyone else was doing just that. I never got anything from him unless you count the air gun and the bicycle. But even the boat he made me out of styrofoam got swept away by the current. My mom used to say that the only good thing you could say about him was that he never ratted on anyone. He was forced into retirement when he was 50. By the time I started school, Grandpa was officially considered senile. Everyone tolerated him, fed him, and cleaned up after him. Couldn't he have at least not lost that phone number? Where are you going? For a walk. I'm not letting you out in your pajamas. Grandpa changed into his clothes and left. We usually tried not to let him out a year before he had smashed his nose right at the entrance to the building, but I'm pissed at him today. Let him bust anything he wants just so it isn't his hip. Hips are serious things. They're kind of like circuit breakers for old people. Personally, I'm in favor of letting old people go to the bathroom under their own power until they die. Grandpa came home two hours later. Where have you been? The park. I ran into Lukyans. How is he? Bed. A bunch of punks murdered his poodle. Strange as it may seem, there was a modicum of truth in his words. Last year, a biker ran over the German shepherd belonging to our neighbor, Lukians. And before he got the German shepherd, he did, in fact, own a poodle. I just remembered the first three numbers. What numbers? Two, two, four. Two, two, four what? The first numbers. Unbelievable. Those were the first three digits of Olga's telephone number. At least I now knew she lived in the center of town. And then what? I don't remember. Six, maybe. Six? Or seven? 
Grandpa, I really need you to remember that number. It is a very important telephone. Very important. Olga is my friend. If you remember her telephone, I am going to marry her. Fate and I never got married, actually. Thus did I learn that my grandmother and grandfather were never married. You don't need a piece of paper if you have love. Thus did I learn that my grandfather and grandmother loved each other. Who would have thought? Grandpa, please remember that telephone, or at least remember where you wrote it down. Oh, my brain. I, I can't remember a thing. I know it's hard, but try. If you remember it, I'll give you four extra Demerols and a whole pack of Nitrazepam. Ah. That, ah, meant Grandpa was passing on the reward. I couldn't believe it. The next day, Grandpa woke me up at 8 a.m. He was already dressed in his best suit. I'm going over by the marketplace. Anything I should buy. I wasn't awake yet. Get some tomatoes and garlic. Grandpa was gone for three hours. He came home tired, but excited. He forgot the garlic, but he did get tomatoes, strawberries, and a pork bone. Gramps, the marketplace is just around the corner. What took you so long? For trying. For trying what? It's not working. Who's not working? But even before Grandpa made a rude gesture, the horrible truth settled in. Did you go visit Fira Borisovna? <laughs> Even when I was a kid, I heard the adults talk about a monstrous woman who lived next to the marketplace. What I remembered from those conversations was that this woman had flopped at being an opera singer and that she had an eye for Konstantin Semyonovich, that is, my grandfather. She's totally deaf. I said, Vera, you remember me? And she says, Vanya. I'm not Vanya. I'm Kostya. Totally deaf. Gramps, please. Don't go visiting Vera Borisovna anymore. 22440. Two, two, four, four, oh. Can't remember anything after that. In those days, all phone numbers in Kiev had seven digits. This meant that there were just two more numbers to figure out. Two numbers. That's just a hundred different combinations. A hundred times to dial the phone and ask for Olga. Hey, that is no problem for a love-struck moron. Gramps, ask for anything you want. Cut up that pork bone for me. I want to make some soup. 
I sharpened up the butcher knife I found behind the bed. I cut the thick pork bone into pieces. Grandpa made a pot of utterly unhealthy soup, and he sprinkled it with greens. Don't look. It's not ready yet. Do you want to salt it? You salt it less. Why don't you go get us some kvass? It's supposed to be hotter than Hades tomorrow. When I got back from buying a bottle of kvass from the vendor on the street, the table in the main room was covered with a tablecloth, and a big, steaming pot of soup stood in the center of the table. Now we could use a bit of cognac, too. I obediently walked into my parents' room. The key to the bar lay on top of Volume 3 of the Folk Art of Hungary. Here's to the final two digits. No, 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 you don't drink to the future. Ah, whoever said such nonsense? After dinner, I brought my reel-to-reel tape machine into Grandpa's room so he could listen to Batorzynski sing. The tape broke twice, but I spliced it with acetone. Then Grandpa gave me a drawing set, and I put a new battery in his flashlight. Then we read old newspapers and stories about Gagarin's flight into space. Then we played Go Fish, and then we both rooted for the Kiev soccer team. Did you know that I saw Shalyapin? That was before the war, when we traveled to France for torsion bars. As it turned out, those French-made things were worthless. Even the slightest angular torque would make them break. Later, we worked out our own specialized compensator that neutralized the sheer stress. Tell me about Shalyapin. But Grandpa never told me about Shalyapin. He remembered. I remembered it. Two, two, four, four, oh, eight, seven. Say that again, I'll write it down. I wrote it down. Eight, seven. Just as I promised, I brought Grandpa a whole packet of nitrazepam. True, I only gave him one Demerol. Demerol doesn't mix with alcohol. Grandpa never went to see Fyria Borisovna again. He lived a long time and then broke his hip. The same year Princess Diana died. I never did marry Olga. She would say things like, Please go swim. Lights fade. Hey everybody, it's Gary, the producer for Lights Up. Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga's new podcast for playwrights, performers, and patrons of theater. I wanted to see if you've heard about Anchor. Anchor, the platform that's hosting our podcast. If you haven't heard about Anchor yet, 
Well, I am happy to be the first to tell you about it. It is free. F-R-E-E. That's right, free. Um, There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your computer uh, or your phone. And Anchor will distribute the podcast that you create so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. And you know what else? It doesn't cost you anything, but you can make money from your podcast and you don't even have to have a minimum listenership. That's right. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So do like we did. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's Anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R, or Anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R.fm to get started and create your podcast. All right, so we just listened to Circuit Breaker by Maxim Kurichkin, and it was translated by John Friedman, who's actually joining us. Um, the voices that we got to hear, the role of grandfather was played by Daniel Meeks, and the role of grandson was played by Jeffrey Benson Parker. So always fun to hear their voices. They, those are two ETC veterans, um, and so it's great to, great to hear their voices on this podcast. Our listeners will be very eager to hear where you are joining us from and uh, a little bit about yourself. We'd love to hear that. Yeah, I'm actually uh, joining you from Crete in Greece. Uh, I've lived here now for two years with my wife, who is an actress and filmmaker. Um, And uh, uh, I lived in Russia for 30 years uh, from approximately 1988 to 2018. And uh, we left Russia because Russian life in Russia was getting difficult and getting more difficult and more dangerous. And, and we decided it was, it was time for us to find a better place to live. Um, and so uh, we bailed out in 2018 um, of, of Moscow. Uh, but uh, most of our conversation that will, will, will happen here will we'll, uh, cover the earlier years when I lived in Moscow. Um, because that's, of course, when I knew Maxime, uh, worked with Maxime uh, closely. I translated, I've translated many of his plays, um, including some of these uh, short plays. Uh, the one that you just did, Circuit Breaker, is one of his best uh, short little uh, dramaticules. And uh, so, yeah, that all happened. Uh, I first met Maxime. He was just a, a little whippersnapper. Uh, who had come uh, up to Moscow from Kiev. Uh, he was working, uh, shuffling papers back and forth in the office of a- an experimental little theater uh, that kind of occupied a back room um, in, a, in a cultural center. And I remember meeting him, the fr- I remember meeting him the first time because he was so incredibly polite and wonderfully friendly, uh, self-deprecating, uh, he still is all of those things, but now he's world famous. So there's a, a there's a bit of a difference to the, you know, there's a bit of gravitas now to the uh, self-deprecation. Um, <laughs> back, back then, it was it was very charming because he was this little kid that you, you know he didn't mean anything yet, and and he knew it, and he and he was kind of shy about it, and it was very funny. Uh, it was very endearing, and I took a liking to him immediately. I had no idea at the time that he and I would actually. Uh, end up working together 
for a long time, for many years. Uh, those years since the last time that I worked on a on a Kodesh uh, play are, are very interesting uh, in uh, both his biography and mine, which is is of less interest to this discussion. But uh, nonetheless, uh, his and my biography are they kind of run parallel. So uh, as I say, I translated the four, maybe five of his major plays and about 10 of his, of his short plays. I love the one you guys just did. Circuit Breaker is a killer play. Me, it's me too. Most, it's one of the most perfect pieces of writing I think I've ever seen. And now, yeah, did I just exaggerate a little bit? Sure. <laughs> but it, is, it is a really perfect piece of writing. It is so, you know, you think it's sentimental and it isn't sentimental it is very cutting about the, you know, the kid. The kid just thinks he knows everything. And the kid is just so smart. And, you know, his grandfather, he's a good guy. You know, grandpa's a cool guy, but, you know, grandpa just, you know, he's old. He doesn't get it anymore. And, the, you know, the more the more he tells us about how his grandpa doesn't get it, the more you realize that the grandpa really gets it. <laughs> and, and Maxime is revealing the, the, the foolishness of his character, of his younger character, by by the younger character thinking that he's telling us really important uh wise uh things and he he does everything from inside out it's a beautiful piece of writing well but we have to acknowledge as translator you have a huge contribution especially as far as cultural nuance goes to really uh -huh. clarifying the story so that we can appreciate some of that intention so we we can't let you downplay your part too much because that's so essential so is that did you is there great difficulty in communicating some of that translating maxime may be the easiest thing i've ever done although maxime is an extremely difficult writer. And he, he plays with words, he plays with ideas, he, he's constantly contradicting. Characters are contradicting themselves, he's contradicting himself, he's contradic contradicting characters, and on and on and on. He's a, he's a very powerful, uh, uh, talented, difficult writer. And I do not know why, but when I sit down to translate Maxime, uh, I feel like I'm the one doing the writing. I very much feel as though I am writing this piece. He's suggesting something to me, and I'm putting it down the way it needs to be, really. <laughs> I was being a little smart, Alec, when I said that. But uh, <laughs> it, it, I really do feel, I really do feel as though I'm the one that's writing. I mean, I must say, as a translator, I've translated nearly 100 plays, and I must say that a translator is a writer. Uh, translators are not given their proper due. Translators are ignored, uh, criticized. You, you make one little tiny error somewhere, everybody knows that error. They see it, and all of the brilliant choices that you have hidden, the little twists and the turns and all of the stuff you've done, nobody sees that stuff. Um, I'm not saying that uh, as a, a complaining. I'm just saying that as, as I understand that that's part of being a translator, is that you must be a writer too. I mean, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. This is a, one of my favorite stories. His, his masterpiece, uh, but in, in my opinion, his masterpiece is a piece called Kitchen. It's a monstrous 135, 140 page play. It is a monstrous piece um, about the Nibelungs coming back to life in, in, in a Russian 
castle in the in the 20th century and the, the clash of the Nibelungs and the Russians. Uh, you know, it's just this incredibly monstrous Wagnerian tragedy, probably extremely complex. It starts out with about 10, 15 pages of poetry. And for 10 years, I called that play untranslatable. I was translating his other plays, very complex, very difficult thing, but I was translating them and, and getting them out there, getting readings done. Uh, and I just kept telling everybody, Kitchener, I would be brought to the US to do lectures on contemporary Russian drama. And I would talk about this brilliant masterpiece, Kitchen, which can't be translated, unfortunately can't be translated. Uh, and about 10 years after that, uh, the play was 10 years old, and I went to a theater festival in Slovakia. And one of the plays produced in Slovakian was a translation of Kitchen. And I said, damn it, I'm going to do this. And I sat down. And do you know I translated that 135 play in six days? I, did, I, I went underwater. And one of the uh, things that I've never forgotten, and I've and and this is wonderful about Max, is that you know I was I held off on the the, the poetry, the the Shakespearean poetry, until the end. I translated the whole play, leaving those first eight ten pages alone. And also, I'm just I I don't consider myself a poet. And I was daunted by the poetry. What do I do with this stuff? I said, shall I, shall I just do this in prose? Shall I, you know. I, I don't know what to do. He said, John, he said, don't worry. He said, just translate each word. Just translate each word. And I thought, well, that's a stupid thing to say. And I went back and I just started doing that. God damn, if it didn't start to work. <laughs> that relationship I have with Max, I hope comes out in the texts that I produce that he has written. Yeah, I think that's just amazing. Thank you for sharing all of that background. Because uh, as Christy said, uh, translators are often overlooked. It's it's we have to, you know, we can't just give all all the credit, um, right, to the brilliant playwright. And and you know, you are comparing Maxime to Shakespeare, and I hope he's not uh, offended when I would say when I read the piece, um, it felt very Chekhovian to me. Um, and that's perhaps because I have spent a lot of my career as an actress working and analyzing and performing in Chekhov pieces. So uh, I identified with it that way and that kind of, um, yeah, that that biting wit, it seems serious, it takes a turn, it's one another, the non sequiturs, those kind of things. Um, I really, when we read these pieces to pick um, for the podcast for this first season, Circuit Breaker was like, I was like, I'm fighting for this one I want. <laughs> um, so badly so but what I really loved hearing was your process as translator which again we don't get to hear very often I related to it as an actor and I'm sure many of our listeners can because uh, when we get a script we don't get the benefit of often I mean sometimes when you're doing new or devised work uh, you get the benefit of talking to the playwright but you are having to translate uh, these thoughts, these words, these carefully thought out and edited words into a character. And much of that is by yourself. Perhaps, you know, you're working with the director, but you're kind of translating that into the physical, actual world. And so hearing you talk about uh, channeling Maxime and, and going that way uh, definitely demystified the process for me as someone who's primarily an actor. Um, so I found that fascinating. 
And I guess I would ask you, you have a very personal close relationship with him. Do you, have you translated other works with someone you don't have a relationship with and how does that change the process for you? Almost every time I translate someone, by the time I'm finished with their play, I feel as though I'm their friend. I feel that they are my friend, I'm sorry. It, it doesn't come from my point of view. I don't know what they think of me. So I can't right. say I'm their friend, but I feel as though they are my friend. That has to be part of the, the process, I think. It does for me. It, 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 I, I, for many years, I would not just, I, I didn't take commissions, for example. I would only translate things that were of interest to me. Mm. And I couldn't imagine taking commissions. I couldn't imagine just translating a play because somebody needed it translated. It just didn't make any sense to me uh, to translate this play. But, uh, you know, life brings on certain challenges sometimes. And, and uh, there was a, a very good friend at a radio station that needed translations for uh, international festivals uh, quite often of Russian plays that were that were nominated for awards in Europe. And she came to me and I began to realize this was kind of a cool idea for me to branch out a little bit. Because, you know, I have my Kurichkin, I have my Olga Muchina, who is another writer that I've translated all of her plays. Uh, I have my Yuri Klavdiev that I've translated many times. I have my you know, kind of my stable of guys, of, of writers, uh, men and women that I that I love and translate. And when uh, I was given the opportunity to translate people I knew nothing about, I thought, gosh, this is kind of interesting. I, I, I began doing that, and it was interesting. And as I say, by the end, I always, you know, I, having gone through the question process with the writer, uh, uh, we would become very, very good friends, at least for a short period of time, at least for the period of time of the work. The actual process, there's nothing vague about it. It's very real and it actually happens. You know, I think in, that's most most artistic processes. It's it's something right. that you tangibly experience in, in the actual energetic physical world, but maybe hard to actually put words right. to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Do you feel like the journey for a translated piece is different? Are there more hoops to jump through for a translated piece of theater than there there is a non-translated piece? Yeah, uh, I'm pretty pessimistic about translated work, at least in the United States, unfortunately. Uh, American theaters are, are not really very receptive to uh, work from other cultures. American theaters are very, very uh, locked in seeing things their own way. Um, they, 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 they're not really interested in having somebody come from a completely different culture in which the whole thinking process, I'm not talking about the artistic process now, but the thinking process, the way you think about having a cup of coffee in the morning is different. And so everything is different and everything is alien. And that alien thing puts Americans off very quickly. Americans want things to be clear. Uh, my feeling about uh, about the work that you do at your theater is that you guys are actually very good with 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 this. Uh, but the vast majority of theaters that I've that I've run up against in the U.S. are are not. They want things to be the way they are used to them them being. Um, I was in New York uh, once with the, the playwright Olga Muchina, uh, um, one of the top Russian playwrights, um, and. Uh, uh, she writes very, very, mm, very poetic, uh, almost dreamy, uh, kind of 
something sliding on super consciousness. Uh, her characters are a little bit ditzy. Her her plays are a little bit, you know, they're they're kind of floating just somewhere outside of reality. She has absolutely spectacular stage directions. Uh, the oranges, the oranges, the oranges were falling, were falling, were falling off the table, off the table, off the table, onto, onto, onto the floor, the floor, the floor, something like that. Now, I mean, that's just like, you know, that just, I, I just said that and I have, I have, I have, I have uh, goosebumps because of the beauty of that. And I remember when we were working on that play, we were working on an English uh, translation. I was told you can't write like that. There was playwrights and very famous, famous playwrights in the in the hall, in the room. And they were saying you can't write like that. That's not clear. You have to. The writer has to tell the actors and tell the director what he or she wants. And it, it, it that's not that's not. What does that mean? And I'm sitting there thinking, well, I can't even talk to you, dude, because I don't even know what to say. I don't know what to say. If you didn't hear that and you didn't get that. She just told you beautifully, beautifully what she wants to see. Now, can you do that as a director, as an actor? I don't know, let's see. But she did a spectacular job of describing that orange. Somebody bumped it and rolling off the, slowly off the table and falling on the floor. Uh, I'm in New York now. That's that's where I am and have been for, for several years. And I see the great divide like that you're talking about. First of all, you, you speak those stage directions. And I know that Christy and I probably had about 10 different images and ways to, you know, do that in our brains. Right. But I think I think what you're speaking on is um, what I've witnessed in New York is the great divide uh, between commercial theater and theater. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think there yeah. is I think there is some resistance and I think, and I, um, hopefully the pandemic is going to try and break some of that open when we come back. And I know you we're we're heading back into kind of uh, lockdown territory here in New York. I know they've imposed that in Greece now, so it's, it's yeah. going to be a journey of its own, but I, what I'm hearing you speak on is things that I, as an artist in New York have bumped up against several times of this, um, this commercialization of theater that when I see productions that are transferred from Europe, from, from other countries, it is astounding to see what they do and what they accomplish. Um, Park Avenue Armory did Yerma a couple years ago. And that production blew my mind in terms of creativity and poeticism and things like that, that you wouldn't necessarily see immediately produced on Broadway or off Broadway. And so I, I think it is changing somewhat, but I am still always astounded when I see a production that is, has been transplanted from outside the States to compare to what we have up and running, right. you know, on Broadway. It's yeah. kind of a well, shame. I get, questions, I get questions from, uh, from directors and, 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 and dramaturgs uh, when they're working on uh, translation, you know, I might have something like, well, uh, a character may say, say something like, you know, well, they go out there and they bear their, they bear their bare backs or they bear their bare butts. Um, and they'll come back and they'll say, well, that's a tautology. Why do you need to say they bear their bare butts? They bear their butts. And I want to go, well, you know, that's not how people talk. 
you know, when people, when people are, in, in the, you're in the you're in the moment, you're looking for a word, and bear came to mind, and you realize that's the right word, and you end up using it twice because you're talking. You're not writing a 19th century novel. These people are talking. <laughs> they're, yep. they're, they're, this is speech. Characters make all kinds of errors. They do all kinds, they confuse themselves all the time. They confuse one another, they confuse language, and that all has to be in there. And you know, I'm, I'm fighting, direct, American directors and dramaturgs always want this stuff cleaned up. Mm -hmm. I, I just, I, I, I get very frustrated. So uh, I, I don't want to get too far off into my frustrations. I want to, I want to, you know, get back to Maxine Kulichkin, actually, because we have lots to, that we need to say about Max. Um, but yeah, this is one of the, you know, I mean, we're talking right now, we are sitting here and talking about the, the problems uh, of translation. And these things are all choices. And when I send off a translation to somebody, I've made, I've made, you know, 5 million choices. You know, somebody may think I just, you know, <laughs> put a bunch of words, looked at it, text aggression and put a bunch of English words on a paper. No, it is an enormous process of making choices of what is, what word, what phrase, what manner of speech can, might bring across, you know, that phrase in Russian, and it might be different words. It may not be the same words. Like when Maxime said to me, just translate the words. That helped me with his poetry, but that does not always help you with, with uh, conversational dialogue. Conversational dialogue, you know, they may, the words may be one thing in Russian, and I may have an English character say some different words, but those are the words. The thing that there's a question in my head at every single second, what would I say in English? And that's what goes down you know, into the translation is what I would, what I would say in that situation under these circumstances. John, I want to ask you, um, because I'm definitely curious and many of our listeners are as well, uh, what, where did your journey with the Russian language uh, start that enabled you to do these translations? Um, what, how did that come about? And, and do you work with any other languages as well? Yeah, I don't. I, I only work with Russian. Uh, Russian is the only language I know well enough that I would feel comfortable translating from. Um, but uh, my, the connection came. I, I fell in love with Russian literature when I was in high school. I read War and Peace, and I uh, I read all of Tolstoy, read all of Dostoevsky, read all of Gogol, read all of Turgenev, and, and I, I'm the kind of that way. I'm obsessive, and. Um, uh, then I happened uh, to see a production of a play called The Suicide by a totally unknown writer at the time called Nikolai Erdman. And I was so knocked out by this, this was in 1980, uh, uh, that I wanted to know more about this guy. And I wanted, to, I wanted so badly to know about him that I ended up going back to uh, uh, grad school. Uh, I got a master's degree uh, writing about Nikolai Erdman, and then I did went to Harvard and did a PhD writing about Nikolai Erdman. And that doing that PhD took me to Russia, where I did my research on my dissertation about Nikolai Erdman. I fell into well, I fell in love first and stayed. Uh, that was one thing, and, and, and I had I had to find something to do. And then all of a sudden. Uh, this newspaper, English language newspaper, opened up in English, 
and somebody ran into me in the theater one day and said, did, did you know there's a new English language newspaper? Maybe you could write about theater for them. And I thought, sure. Well, I said, do you need an article about theater? And they said, well, I'll tell you what, we had an article coming in and never made it in. Can you have something to me in two and a half hours? <laughs> anyway, and what do you say in those situations? The answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'd never done anything. I, the last thing I'd written was my dissertation, which took a year and a half. You know, I mean, and, I, and they wanted to see in two and a half hours, but I did it. Uh, they liked it, and I did more, and I ended up writing about theater for this paper for the next 25 years. And I began to just do some translations for myself, and then I would begin to do them for publication, and it turned into a thing. Uh, it turned into a thing. And then when Maxime came along uh, uh, for me around 1999, uh, 2000, that was a real, that was a major change. That was a major uptick in the quality uh, and in, in the quantity uh, of work that I did. Yeah, I did a lot of work in the, in the, between 2000 and 2012, 13, 14. Um, there was a thing called in Russia at the time called New Drama. Um, and it was a real boom. It was a real boom in writers. Lots of really interesting, very different kinds of writers were, were cropping up. And I was translating a, a lot of them. Not all of them by any stretch of the imagination, but I was translating a lot of them, Maxime being one of them. Well, and that was going to be a question I was going to ask was different theater movements and what you notice in different cultures as opposed to the U.S. You know, definitely we've touched on that. Um, majority of U.S. audiences crave a little bit more of a conventional entertainment sort of vibe versus maybe more grassroots theaters. Um, but, you know, like I know uh, the U.K. had the in-your-face theater movement, which was very raw and gritty. And do you feel like Russia had had their own sort of theater movement? Is that yeah, sort of the, the, the new drama, the new drama movement was uh, was actually very influenced by British drama and by British ways of doing things. The Royal Court Theater went to Russia and took uh, seminars there, and they, they would give money to Russians to come to England, and so Russian writers would come to, uh, to, to London and would see how things were done there. there was, so there was a real influence on that. And the Royal Court is very kind of a gritty kind of, uh, well, uh, uh, the In Your Face movement started at the Royal Court. They're, they're the ones that started that too. Uh, and uh, so that passed over into the new drama uh, movement, which became kind of a Russian in-your-face drama. It, it was never called that, but that's essentially what it was. It was a Russian version of in-your-face, and it, it irritated a lot of people, uh, you know, people in Russia. Russia is a very interesting, interesting culture because it's very, very experimental. It's very avant-garde and very conservative, and all of those things all exist at the same time. You know, it's a big space. You know, in Moscow, there's what, 130, 140 theaters in Moscow, a huge city with tons of theaters. And um, uh, so there's something for everybody. If you want, if you want conservative, there's a tons, there's tons of conservative theater. You want more cutting edge, there's there's a, quite a few that are going to be doing that kind of thing. So you 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 get it all. All of that stuff does exist and can exist side by side in, in Moscow. And um, so uh, the new drama thing is, is considered to have begun around 2000, but the roots of it started in the mid 90s and it carried on until around 2012, 2012 or so. 
2013, and then everything just kind of started. Russian culture, Russian society, uh, Russian government uh, all started to tighten down, clamp down. And one of the, the great uh, theaters that, that championed the new, the new drama, uh, Theater Doc, uh, which tended to, the name Theater Doc means theater, documentary theater. They didn't do only documentary theater, but they did a lot of it, and it was very important in their work. Um, uh, they were they ended up being uh, hounded and harassed by the the authorities. The, they, the authorities would close out a space that they're working in, so they'd go to another space, and then they closed that space. They would go to another space. They closed that space. Uh, and uh, both the founders of the theater, Yelena Gremina and Misha Ugarov, Mikhail Ugarov. Uh, both just reaching the age of 60. They both died within two months of each other um, two years ago. The stress of the government going after them just became too much. There's no room for a movement like that in Russia right now. You know, what we're experiencing here in the States with the pandemic, and obviously it's on a global level, but um, we're expecting to see and have started to see little bits of it in influencing the art and and vice versa, right? Um, and that's often what what cultures depend on the arts for is to reflect back when when our, our right. nation is hurting and in turmoil and whatnot. And you mentioned that you and your wife left Russia because it was becoming dangerous. And Maxim is, you know, was um, really making sure that he identified as Ukrainian after this, the, the struggle and the strife between Russia and, and Ukraine. So I was going to ask, what are what is happening? What are you seeing with these playwrights like Maxim and others? How are they responding to this um, cultural and, and governmental crisis that is happening? The ones that were prominent uh, for the first 10, 12, 14 years of the century uh, have, the vast majority of them have gone into a period of crisis, have ceased writing, uh, some have given up to drink. Some have gone over to religion. One uh, very prominent writer, Ivan Gurupayev, uh, moved and put himself in voluntary exile in Poland. Uh, Maxim left for Ukraine. Uh, Ugarov and Gremina died. Uh, it, it, the the uh, the end story of that kind of generation of writers and that movement is is you know is going to be one that just kind of trails off into sand. And I think it's an interesting story, and it's worth telling um, uh, this about Max. Um, he came back. He'd already left for Ukraine. Uh, he was he was extremely uh, upset with Russian friends for not understanding why it meant so much for him to identify with Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, very few people stood up against the war in, in uh, the Russian war in Ukraine. Uh, he was extremely offended by that. He was very hurt by uh, his colleagues, uh, people around him. Um, and um, when Yelena Gremina died, uh, no, it was when, uh, Ugarov died. Misha Ugarov died first on April Fool's Day. Max took a train, arrived in, at 8.30 in the morning at, at Kiev train station in Moscow, came directly to the uh, service at the, at the church, 
uh, we all went out to the cemetery to bury uh, Misha, and then we went back to the theater uh, as a kind of a gathering, uh, memorial gathering, if you will. And then Max had to get back. He had to catch a train six o'clock that night to go back to Kiev. And everybody was very happy to see him. He hadn't been around for a couple of years, and and you know everybody was patting him on the back, and he was unhappy because one of his best friends had just died and he was unhappy because he was back in this city that he didn't feel was a friend. Max said, I, I think I'm gonna have to go now. And somebody says, well, come back. It was good seeing you, come back soon. And Max snapped, give us back Crimea and I'll come back and see you. Nobody gave a damn about, uh, about Russia annexing uh, Crimea, about Russia waging war against Kiev. And for Max, that was, it destroyed Moscow for him. And uh, uh, I was actually working on a project with him. And it's, it's the kind of mix of history and, and spectacle that Max is really good at writing. And so I suggested him for it. And we worked on this with, with a, a British director for, gosh, over a year. And nothing ever happened. It, it died. The project died. Max probably wrote... 15 plays in that year, none of which satisfied the, 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 the British director. And I now realize, I now realize it's because Max was working, was, he, was, he was still living in Moscow at the time. And Max was, was going through the breakup with Russian culture at that moment. And he was writing this play about a Russian revolution that he didn't accept not, not only the way many Russians don't accept the Russian Revolution, but as a Ukrainian who was affected by that damn revolution in the neighboring country that ended up spilling over into Ukraine and you know making a mess of Ukraine. So he had this real, this, this, this hatred for what he was doing. And, and it was making him write incredibly you know, harsh stuff. And, and, and every time he was asked to rewrite, he wouldn't just rewrite, you know, a scene or a dialogue or something. He'd rewrite the whole play. I was, I was present as Max was divorcing himself from Russian culture and Russian society and Russian history. So Max and I, I mean, we remain in touch. Uh, I, I wrote him just yesterday and asked if, you know, I told him how brilliant Circuit Breaker uh, is. And uh, I just wanted to remind him that, that we were going to be having this conversation and that kind of thing. And he's, oh, it's so great to hear from you. We're, we're in touch. But, but he now writes in Ukrainian, uh, so I won't be translating him. If, you know, if, if his new work is going to be translated into English, it will be, it will be somebody else. He's, uh, he's reinventing himself as, as a Ukrainian writer. I mean, he's, he's identified as, an, as a Ukrainian writer for ever since 20, what was it? When did the war begin? 2014, I believe. Uh, he immediately made that, he made that call to me and he said, I, I want my first name to be spelled in the Ukrainian way, not the Russian. But since about 2016 or 17, uh, he has been reinventing himself as, as a, a Ukrainian writer. One of the things about uh, Circuit Breaker that I really loved was the relationship between the grandfather and the grandson. Um, I just thought there was such fun depth to it. You know, there's just so much in there. Do you feel yeah. like that's typical of his work, that he's great with writing relationships? Has that developed over the years in, in terms of his book yeah, of work? It is, it is, that is a, yes, because he's so perceptive. Yes, all of his plays have that to one extent or another. 
But I do think, I mean, even though this is just a little five page thing, I, I, I do think he's, he's done it to a perfection here that, that perhaps I've never seen. It's just, it is this perfect Fabergé egg uh, uh, circuit breaker. It's just this beautiful little thing. And you know, I am sure, I do not know this, but I am sure there's a good deal of autobiogra autobiography at this play. Uh, I know that he it was very fond of his grandfather. Uh, he is a very self-deprecating person. Um, and so it would be for, for a self-deprecating person and writer to sit down and you know write this play about a, a stupid young kid uh, with a pretty cool grandfather. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think there's a bit of autobiography in here. Well, the subtitle for Circuit Breaker is a drama as backdrop for life. Yeah. Um, and so hearing you talk about Max, even you know, you you talked about the the breakup with the culture and how that reflected in his writing and and here we're saying perhaps there's some bits of real life here uh that sounds like that's something he cannot divorce himself from is is writing what he's feeling and what is in his life was that little uh subtitle you was that him do you translate no, exactly no, no, what no, he does no no that's that's max of course that's max of course but actually i will say that the vast majority of his major, his big plays, uh, there's nothing, there's no autobiography in them at all. They are wildly imaginative, crazy things that take place in different spaces and times and merge the deep past with the future. Uh, one culture, he meshes cultures that don't mesh. He meshes languages. He's, he's, he often plays with languages. One play that's written partly in Ukrainian, partly in, in Polish, partly in Russian. He, he is a very inventive uh, writer. But these little plays, these dramaticules, if we, can, if we can call them that, they were clearly written at a point where he was, he was at a crossroads, perhaps. You know, I don't, I don't want to get too Freudian here. But I, a whole bunch of these little things just came out all at once. And, and they all have kind of a personal touch to them that his bigger plays don't. I, I think he was clearly playing with the extent that he could mess with his own biography and his writing, something that he hadn't done before. Do you remember what year it was he started doing these and, and or in particular when Circuit Breaker uh, was written? We took several of these translations to Ann Arbor and uh, they were, uh, student productions were done of the dramatic, about five or six of the dramaticules. So 2011, 2012, probably. So I don't know if there's anything in your career that you want to plug, any website, anything our listeners can go to find out more about you and your work. We love to give everybody, all of our guests, the time to, to do that, so. Uh, and I, would, I would love to direct them to something about Max, but I don't believe Max keeps a, a website. So uh, uh, actually one of the better places to find out about Max is to go to my website because uh, I have a, a bibliography there and a bibliography of all my translations and so all of the work. Uh, so they're all uh, references at least to them all are on my website. What is your favorite word? I don't have a favorite word. I hate to say that. It would be lovely to have a to have a glib answer. I do not have a favorite word. That's fine. Do you have a least favorite word? Must. Must? Mm -hmm. As in have to. 
What is your favorite app? You're talking to somebody that's 66 years old. I don't even... <laughs> so this might, I might know the answer to this one as well, but I'll ask it anyway. What is your favorite emoji? Yeah, it's it's one with, uh, it, yeah, I, use, I do use an emoji. Okay. It, it's one with sunglasses on. What is your favorite board game? Monopoly. Sweet or savory? Probably sweet should be savory. Window or aisle seat? Oh, aisle seat. Oh, God, yes. Okay, this is a good one. Um, dolphins or koalas? Dolphins. Dark chocolate or milk chocolate? Oh, milk chocolate, anytime, all the time. Summer or winter? Summer. Name a dessert that you do not like. I've never made a dessert I don't like. What is a superpower that you wish you had? Going back in time. What are three things you can't live without? I can't live without the sea. I can't live without the sky. And the incredible fresh food that one gets on Crete. Okay, if you oh, had yeah. a tattoo, what and where would it be? Or if you have tattoos, tell us about them. Yeah, I'm not a tattoo dude. Yeah, I have to say it again. I'm 66, different generation, not interested. Uh -uh. All right, you're stuck on an island. I'm excited about this question. Yeah. You are stuck on an island. You can pick one food to eat forever without getting tired of it. What are you picking? Oranges, oranges, because oranges on Crete are just... What is a book or play that you think everyone should read? Well, I'm not going to be terribly original in this, but I do think the, the, the greatest book, the most unbelievable book, the most influential book I ever read in my life was War and Peace. I, I can't help but, <laughs> but I co-wrote this book, Provoking Theater, with Kamaginkas, the Russian director, Kamaginkas. And this, this, in my opinion, is the, the peak my success. If I have a success, this is it. Kama Ginkus is a brilliant director and a brilliant human being. It's a very cool book about living life and, and making theater and making theater out of your life. Uh, if your life were a song, what would the title be? Idiot Wind. If you could master one instrument, what would it be? Uh, the guitar, which, you know, just made a mess out of me. Uh, I never got beyond uh, strumming. All right, this is another great one for, for someone who's traveled and had such worldly experiences. If you could live anywhere else, where would you live? Ireland. Uh, what is your favorite way to take a rest or decompress? Watch something really silly uh, on, on TV, you know, watch, you know, people falling off of skateboards, uh, you know, uh, squeezing ice cream cones so that the ice cream comes up in their face. Uh, my, my wife does not understand it, and when I and, and I always feel if, she, if she's in her uh, study, you know, working on a film or something, you know, go in there, lie down on the sofa, and click it on, click on the YouTube, and start watching, and then she'll come out and I'll go, oh shit, I've been caught again. <laughs> it's, you know, it's like being caught with Playboy by your mother when you were. Uh <laughs> It's very American, isn't it? That that like joy, that yeah. schadenfreude yeah. joy we take in watching people fall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she she doesn't get it, and she's and she's she's probably right. But it's it's true. That is what I will do. To uh, that's the quickest way. You know, those little those things run about ten minutes, and it's like you watch it for ten minutes, and you've had a bit of a rest. <laughs> All right. If you could switch lives with someone for a day, who would it be? 
Oh, you never do that. You know, that's not of any interest to me. Uh, you know, I, there's there's so much work that goes into living my own, and uh, it's just one of those things. That it, it sounds kind of boring of me, but um, yeah, those kinds of things don't don't uh, they don't trigger any anything in my mind at all. What is inspiring you in life right now? Uh, my wife, Oksana Muisina, who, uh, uh, as I said, uh, achieved, uh, you know, she was one of the most famous, most popular actors in Russia and, and had her career uh, pretty much destroyed uh, by uh, the situation in Russia. And uh, we came to another country uh, and she is reinventing herself now as a filmmaker. She has found a small uh, theater group here that she, she, a Greek theater group that she performs with from time to time. Uh, uh, but for the most part, she is, is in reinventing herself as a filmmaker. And as I watch this happening, I am just absolutely ecstatic because it is incredible to watch someone that can have really a lot of success pulled out from under them, uh, get back up, dust themselves off, and then head off in another direction. Pretty amazing. That inspires me. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I guess one of the problems is that I don't, I don't ever listen to anybody's advice. I always just do what I want to do anyway. And so like whatever they've, whatever has been suggested to me is like winning the ear one ear and out the other. All right, last two questions. What would you like to be remembered for? Honesty. All right, last question. Describe yourself in a hashtag. I know what they are, but I don't use them. Yeah, I, unfortunately, that's that's your crowning one, and it should like really give somebody a really cool answer. And I, I'm not going to give you a cool answer on that. I'm just not going to come up with anything. I feel like you're such an advocate. Like I would, I would just call you like an artist advocate because. You really are making sure that that you, you just lift up other people's work and light and even talking about your wife. I, I don't know. I would call you like hashtag artist advocate or yeah. I realize I realize this is then and this is way over time, but I that's fascinating. And I and I have to I just have to tell you just for the conversation that we three are having. Um I have to tell you a brief story about uh, about myself. I uh, I was supposed to be a, a baseball player. I was that was that was what I wanted to do. Um, I was a very good baseball player. I did play professional baseball, uh, not for long, but I did play. And um, uh, I got into a bad situation in in the uh, professional team I was performing with, and there was no support whatsoever for uh for us it was it was a very very bad situation and when i lost my life's dream of, of being a baseball player i went through many years of just kind of wandering through the world and doing nothing and and uh worked at silly places and, and in basements and uh, before I went back to graduate school many years later. Uh, and as I have gone through my life, I have been passionate, you're right, I have been passionate about advocating for Maxim Kurochkin, for Olga Muhina, for Yuri Klavdiev, for Russian theater. I mean, I have, a, I have a whole body of work, you know, thousands and thousands of articles in which I 
worked very hard to present Russian theater fairly, but but in a in a in a positive light for my wife, absolutely for Oksana. And I've always known that because I did not have somebody at the moment I needed to have someone there to support me in my dream. I have always felt the need to be there for someone else who needed it. And it's a, it's a kind of a bittersweet thing. It's, uh, it, 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 doesn't, it, it doesn't check the box for what you wanted to do. And, and you go through your whole, I mean, you know, I'm a 66 year old man. I have, uh, I'm essentially in semi-retirement on Crete. I mean, I'm not retired at all. I'm working like crazy, but you know, traumatized is not the right word, but it's still a very difficult thing for me that I did not play uh, professional baseball longer. And, uh, and so, yeah. And so, you know, the fact that you saw that, the fact that that's fascinating because I, I wouldn't have thought that I projected that in our conversation there, but I see that that is part of me. That is, that is probably who I have become. Um, you know, we don't always become who we want to be. We don't become who we should be. It doesn't always work that way. We become who we become. <laughs> All your, your love and passion for translating. I think, you know, it seems like your goal is to make this accessible and, and the love and the care that you have for the culture and the plays and the playwrights is really just lovely and astounding. And I think such a necessary part of of our global picture of art. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. This has been, uh, this has been a lot of, it's been a, a very re rewarding conversation. And Gary, I now see why your theater does such cool things. It's because you have a lot of cool people you're working with. The winner for this week's prop competition is Peter Dakutis and his monologue, the sweetest sounds. Lights up on Paul, a middle-aged gay man. I was afraid that Bradley might be a little too vain. It was our first meeting after chatting online. Not a date, really. Just an opportunity to get acquainted in a public setting. And we'll see if there was any chemistry. No pressure. It was a beautiful day. So we met for ice cream. Bradley was certainly fastidious in his manner and dress, has ordered his green tea ice cream in a cup and carefully ate it. Me, I'm a schlub. No attention to my appearance, and <clears throat> I ordered my Rocky Road in a cone, making a mess with it. Bradley wore a hearing aid and seemed subconscious about it, which is why I thought he might be vain. But then I reminded myself that most of us are self-conscious in some way. We're so busy wondering what people might be thinking of us when they're probably wondering what people might be thinking of them. So I let it go and focused on the conversation. It's difficult enough meeting men who are my age. And what a conversation it was. We talked about theater, especially musicals, museums, wines, favorite vocalists like Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughn. Yeah, 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 gay cliches, but... We were sharing our passions, and he impressed me with the depth of his knowledge. By now, the ice cream had long been finished. My fingers were sticky, and there was a sweepy residue in his cup. Bradley asked for my phone number, and as I started giving him the digits to put into his phone, he leaned forward, fiddling with the hearing aid. I don't know how, but it fell right into his ice cream cup. <laughs> he had a WTF look on his face. I held my breath for a minute. <laughs> 
then, and I loved him for it. He gingerly fished out his hearing aid, dripping with melted ice cream, and said, The sweetest sounds I'll ever hear are still inside my head, I responded. We looked at each other and said at the same time, Richard Rogers. <laughs> Bradley and I grinned, then reached for each other's hand. The sweetest sounds we'd ever hear were just beginning. Lights fade. Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theater company located in southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. Graphics by Jamie Goodnight. And Casey Keelan as the associate producer. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the expressed written consent of the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. The plays presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you are interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or reader, please shoot us a message at lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ETC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. Or you can become a monthly subscriber on Patreon and get access to exclusive content. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast. Lights Up is hosted by Anchor, a Spotify company. The easiest way to make a podcast.